0: I'm John, and this is DOLW 2, Episode 19, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, Volume 4, pages 932 to 939. I want to answer in this episode 19 some questions that homosexuals and pederasts in the right of sodomy have asked, or might ask, and other homosexuals and pederasts out in the world might ask about why homosexuality is called a sin in the Bible, and if it is really just because homophobes wrote those anti-homosexual verses in the Old and New Testaments and merely put their prejudices against homosexuals into God's mouth in order to sanctify and justify those views and impose them on other people easier. That is also how I used to think while I was out of the church and in rebellion against it as a member of the Church of Satan because of the hypocrisy and pretentiousness that I saw and experienced in the Catholic and other Christian churches. But I came to the realization that those religious phonies and hypocrites don't own the church and are merely the right hand of Satan instead of his obvious left hand, and Satan wearing a halo and strumming a harp, and flapping angel wings and crowing cock-a-doodle-doo, posing as an angel of light, as Paul says in Second Corinthians eleven fourteen, instead of in his usual red tights, barbed tail, horned, and carrying a pitchfork. One face of Satan is no better or different than another. But I couldn't let rebellion against the holy face of Satan keep me away from the truth of Jesus or Jesus himself, which those people had assimilated, like a spiritual version of the Borg in Star Trek, any longer or be driven by them to the unholy face of Satan. No more Satan in any disguise. Only Jesus and the spirit of Jesus, as far as I can discern it from now on, and not switching from one face of Satan to another or back again and back and forth. So now, as to the question of whether the Bible writers put their own bigotry into God's mouth to sanctify and justify their prejudice against homosexuals, and it was and is another form of Satan's appearing as an angel of light and holy face of Satan. Of course, any book written by human beings, no matter how divinely inspired, might and probably will have some human thoughts, opinions, and prejudices in it. The purest water flowing through rusty or dirty pipes, will certainly have some plex of rust or dirt in it, and the best of us are still rusty and or dirty pipes, and our righteousness is as filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. We have all become like something unclean. All our just deeds are like polluted rags. We have all withered like leaves, and our crimes carry us away like the wind. Isaiah 64 5 So how are such people as we are today or were 2,000 or 3,000 years ago supposed to be able or to have been able to understand and transmit the will and words of God accurately. If people have misunderstood the will and words of God so badly in the past as to commit terrible crimes against other people in their actions, such as the Inquisition, the Crusades, the Holy Wars, and witch trials and burnings, even the show trial and burning as a witch of St. Joan of Arc. How can we know that some misunderstandings of God's will and words haven't also been written down in the Bible and passed off as God's word? We can know because even as with material water, there are safeguards and filtration systems of the water of truth passing through human beings and put into the Bible as the word of God and given that stamp of approval and God wouldn't have entrusted such an important job as passing on his exact words and will entirely to we human beings who don't even understand each other half or more of the time or get what other people are saying right. Like calls unto like, and the will and words of God can be known from what we already know are the words of God, that is, God is love love doesn't mean doing with other people whatever you feel like doing and using them as some people quite obviously do hatefully with other people for their own enjoyment or amusement if any or hopefully most or all of these people who believe in homosexual or pederast activities for themselves wouldn't allow or approve of their own young children's engaging in homosexual or pederast activities with other same age or even much younger children any time that they felt like it and as much as they liked, then even they realized despite themselves that it is love not to let their children do whatever they feel like doing and to put some restrictions on their behavior. So how could God love his children very much more than we love our children? and not, put some, not also put some restrictions on their activities and tell them not to do certain things and punish them for doing those things, but instead just allow them to engage in all of the, pedof- all of the pedophilia, prostitution, homosexuality, sadomasochism, bestiality, and anything else that their little hearts desired to their heart's content and smile indulgently and approvingly down on all of that. He couldn't, the same as any truly loving parent couldn't, unless we make God far worse than even the worst of us are. But that isn't letting God be God, which is love, and rather remaking Him in even less than our own image and likeness. Any child who has no restrictions on their behavior and can say or do whatever they feel like without fear of punishment, contradiction, or reprimand becomes a brat and intolerable to have around, and so does any so-called adult, in their body anyway. That is an obnoxious creep. Also, assuming that Bible writers are at least as dedicated to sticking to writing down God's words and not their own as restaurant menu writers are to writing down the meals available in the restaurants and not going off on irrelevant tangents of their views on politics or relating details of their personal lives, or anything else that they feel like talking about and putting that in their menus or almanac writers are to writing down the phases of the moon and other pertinent and folksy items in their almanacs and not going off on irrelevant tangents either and so on for writers on every other subject. We can actually also assume that Bible writers will take even greater care to stick to their far greater subject and not put their two cents in than all these other writers are doing to stick to their subjects without putting their two cents in on those. Thirdly, homosexuality may be natural, but that doesn't matter if nature is corrupted, as is shown by pederasty, kleptomania, hatred and every other sins also being natural to different people. And only if all those sins are right because they come naturally to people is homosexuality right just because it comes naturally to some people, and those sins aren't right. Fourthly, homosexuality doesn't fulfill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, except through recruitment and manipulation of the young, and all homosexuals are here in the world because their parents didn't stick with only same-sex relations. It isn't necessary to stop calling homosexuality a sin or make up God to suit yourself, so as to make him approve of homosexuality if you're just going to go on sinning anyway. But just keep doing that sin, knowing that it's a sin, out in the world with all the rest of the sin. And don't drag that sin into the Catholic Church so that people have somewhere to turn to if they ever want to come out of all that sin instead of no place to turn since the Church is the same as the world and it's sinning. It is Satan's business under his holy and unholy faces to sow confusion in the world, but I have tried my best to fight against some of that here. My colleague Mike doesn't believe that it matters if homosexuals think that homosexuality is called a sin because homophobes put that in the Bible, but actually they won't stop fighting for their right to be in the church, in quotes, as long as they think that so it is relevant here to answer. And now for my reading from the Rite of Sodomy, Homosexual in the Roman Catholic Church, Volume 4, pages 932 to 939. A Profile of the Offenders. In its report, the board stated that there were 11 offending, 11 offending friars 12 if a friar in the process of grooming a potential victim was included out of a total of 44 Franciscans who staffed St. Anthony's Seminary between 1967 and 1987. During this time interval, there were nine years with one known abuser among the friars, nine years with two abusers, four years with three abusers on the faculty, and one year with a record five abusers, on the teaching staff. As of November, 1993, there were 34 boys who were reported to have been abused by faculty members at the seminary. One friar molested seven boys, another had 18 victims, and the remainder of offenders had one or two victims each. Of the 12 known offenders, including the groomer, one was deceased, one was convicted of abusing a minor, and left the order, After serving jail time, one left the Order before professing his final vows, and the remainder were in various states of psychiatric evaluation, treatment, aftercare, or living in supervised arrangements, or had been dismissed by the Order. The Board placed great emphasis on the fact that no friar who had been rehabilitated and reassigned by the Franciscan Order was currently living in santa barbara county as if local catholics were to derive some comfort from the fact that if the offender struck again at least his next victim would not be from their own parish or school in line with provincial policy information on criminal friars was to be given out by the order only on a need-to-know basis reassignment of guilty priests was open-ended the board noted that all The criminal friars were well educated, having gone through six to nine years of formation, education, and training, and all possessed excellent pastoral skills, along with high levels of self esteem. No shrinking violets here. Significantly, while the victims were pouring their guts out to the board, none of the abusers expressed any sense of remorse for their actions. As a matter of fact, there was not a single friar who chose to speak to the board. Nevertheless, the board appeared to overflow with sympathy for the plight of the offender and the need to be sensitive to his feelings and his need for forgiveness, brotherly love, compassion and dignity. The board characterized the abusers as being clever and manipulative and operating in secret. All had mastered the grooming techniques designed to secure the trust of the victim's family as well as that of the victim. All modes of seduction and persuasion were used to get the victim's cooperation, including threats of violence. Some priors gave money to families of victims who were poor. The acts perpetrated against their victim or victims ranged from the fondling of genitals Masturbation of the victim, a mutual act of masturbation to fellatio and sodomy. One friar photographed students in the nude. Another punished his victim with beatings or threats of beating, threat of beatings. Some victims were supplied with alcohol and/or cigarettes. One staff member was reported to have offered a boy amyl nitrate which is used to relax the sphincter muscle to facilitate sodomy. Molestation occurred in a variety of different locations. Faculty offices, private quarters of the friars, in dorms after lights were out, the infirmary on camping trips, and even in the homes of the victims. Clerical perverts lack sexual integration. The author of the closing segment of the report titled Theological and spiritual considerations, incarnational theology is not identified, although the references cited in the text suggest it may have been provincial to Nietzsche Tine- Tine- or one of his subordinates. The root cause of the clerical sexual perversion, the report suggests, is the lack of sexual integration. Many religious and priests, Franciscan friars included, received sexual formation that included negative and even repressive attitudes toward sexuality the report stated it claimed that clerical pederists have a different difficult time dealing with their sexual needs and issues of intimacy often these individuals deal with their alienation by compulsive absorption in only seemingly healthy involvement, such as excessive work, and in patently unhealthy actions, such as sexual abuse. The report continued. In other sections of the report, the board referred to pederasty as dysfunctional behavior. It appears that the members of the board of inquiry had difficulty defining pederasty, especially the traumatic homosexual attack on a young male during early adolescence as a criminal and prosecutable act a heinous crime that attacks the body and soul of the victim and wreaks havoc in the lives of those who love him a profile of the victims the ages of the victims of the franciscan friars ranged from between seven and sixteen at the time the abuse was initiated the younger victims were members of father van handel's boys choir while the teenage victims were enrolled at St. Anthony's Seminary. All of the victims were virgins at the time they were abused by the friars, including those who later recalled that they had experienced same-sex urgings before they were molested. As a whole, they were happy. Young boys from good Catholic families, were, when they joined the Santa Barbara Boys' Choir, arrived at St. Anthony's. Unlike the perpetrators, the victims all experienced a crisis of conscience when the initial abuse occurred and for years after. They also experienced feelings of shock, repulsion, confusion, guilt, followed by a sense of betrayal, anger, depression, loss of trust, resentment of authority, and genuine fear. Consciously or unconsciously, the victims... Emotionally resented their parents for putting them in an unsafe environment, even though at the intellectual level they knew their parents didn't know they were being subject to sexual abuse. For many victims of sexual abuse, true closure comes when the perpetrator is put behind bars for his crime. Uh, But the Franciscan order did not share this objective. Franciscan officials made every attempt to protect their friars and keep them from being brought to trial and incarcerated for their crime. As of November 1993, 20 of the more than 34 victims had filed suit against their abuser and the Franciscan Order. Most of the civil suits have been dismissed because of the statute of limitations under California state law. The Franciscans did agree to cover therapy costs for victims and their immediate family members. The payments from the Franciscan Order to victims of the fires at St. Anthony ranged from a low of $90,000 to a high of $1.7 million. In exchange for the cash payments, the Franciscans extracted a signed pledge of confidentiality. After the board submitted its report on November 1993, other suits followed. On April 22, 1997, Brendan P. Sheehy, a father, a victim of Father Van Handel dismissed his suit against Van Handel and the Franciscan Order in exchange for a secretly negotiated out-of-court settlement. Father Van Handel, the choir director of the Santa Barbara Boys Choir, started to molest the eight-year-old boy shortly after he had joined the choir in 1984. The abuse continued until 1991. He she originally asked for a settlement of $320,000, but settled for only $120,000 from Aetna, the insurance agency carried by the Franciscans. On January 1, 2003, victims of clerical sex abuse, like those that occurred at St. Anthony's, were given a reprieve when the statute of limitations limitation in California was extended indefinitely for 2003 only. After 2003, the statute of limitations were extended to age 26. Among those who took advance, advantage of the 2003 law was 32-year-old Robert Akrete, who was molested by Van Handel when he went on a choir tour to England. Accrete filed his suit in Santa Barbara Superior Court. Van Handel, who completed a prison term in 2002 and has since left the Franciscan Order, will be open to new charges, as will the Franciscans, on the trial of Father Crum. Father Gus Crum, a priest of the province of Santa Barbara, was one of the 11 Franciscans known to prey on teenage boys at St. Anthony Seminary during the 1970s and early 1980s. After the seminary closed in 1987, the Franciscan provincial Moved Crum out of the Los Angeles to Archdiocese to the Diocese of Orange County, the Diocese of Orange, headed by Bishop Norman MacFarland. Over the next ten years, Father Crum served, as, served at a number of parishes, including Ascension Parish in Huntington Beach. In 1995, officials of the Diocese of Orange were informed by letter that Crum had been accused of sex abuse when he served as a moderator at Saint Anthony's Seminary. The following year they were told by officials of the province of Santa Barbara that a momentary that a monetary settlement had been reached with Crumb's accuser, Ignacio Archives of Oakland, California. mister Archieves recalled that Father Crumb had his own room across from the boys' dorm. He was supposed to keep an eye on us, take care of us, like parents, while we were away from home, said Akives, who lost his father at the age of four. Instead, the prior prayed on us, he said. After the Aquivs' revelation and subsequent out-of-court settlements, the Franciscans permitted Crum to remain at his parish. Order officials later claimed that the charges against Crumb were unsubstantiated yet they had been willing to pay out money to his accusers. In 1998, the Provincial of the Franciscan Order removed Father Crumb from the Diocese of Orange, now under the new leadership of gay-friendly Bishop Todd Brown, and sent the wayward friar to the Archdiocese of Portland, Oregon, under yet another gay-friendly prelate, Archbishop John Lassney, one of Joseph Cardinal Bernardin's appointees. In the spring of 2002, Father Crum, now pastor of Ascension Parish in Portland, was advised that another of his alleged victims had filed a complaint against him. The complainant had hired attorney David Nye of Santa Barbara in anticipation of future legal action against Crum and the Franciscan Order. On May 19, 2002, at the end of Mass at Ascension Parish, Crumb, affectionately known as Father Gus, to his parishioners, read a statement from the pulpit in reaction to an article that appeared in the Orange Register citing his earlier pederastic record at St. Anthony Seminary. Father Gus told his parishioners that the charges made against him in 1995 were investigated by the Order, and his Franciscan superiors had completely exonerated him. He did not mention that a settlement had been paid out to his accuser. He also read a letter of support from Rev. Finian McGinn, the provincial of Santa Barbara. As the parish staff moved forward to stand in support of their beleaguered pastor, the parishioners gave the priest a two-minute cheering ovation. The following evening at Ascension Parish, the Social Action Committee Held an open forum to discuss the problem of clerical sexual abuse and to encourage further support for Father Gus. One week later, Crum was suddenly pulled out of Ascension Parish by the Franciscan superiors at Santa Barbara. Parishioners were informed that Father Gus had submitted to, had admitted to committing. Indiscretions with teenage boys at St. Anthony's, and that in his case, and that his case, had been turned over to the Independent Response Team (IRT) of the Franciscan Province of Santa Barbara. Provincial Minister McGinn told the media that on the basis of the second complaint against Father Crum, the IRT had decided to send the friar to a treatment facility for psychological testing and assessment. In May 2003, following his stay at an unnamed residential clinic, Crumb's priestly faculties were removed by his superiors, and he was relocated to the Franciscan friary of St. Francis of Assisi in the Diocese of Sacramento, situated near a parochial grade school. The ordinary of the diocese, Bishop William K. Wygand, was not informed of the reassignment. Brother John Kiesler, spokesman for the province of Santa Barbara, said the order was under no obligation to tell diocesan officials that they had placed a predatory pederast in their midst. Six weeks after the arrival of Crum in the diocese of Sacramento, the media exposed his whereabouts at the friary, and his criminal record at St. Anthony's Seminary. A group called the Survivors Alliance and Franciscan Exchange Network SafeNet, headed by Father, headed by Paul Ferracano, who was molested by a friar at St. Anthony's in 1965, defended the placement of Crum at the Franciscan priory. In a press release, Ferricano stated that Crum was no longer allowed to practice his ministry and that he was being strictly monitored internally and externally by both his superiors and a private probation officer. Ferricano said that Crum had no contact with children from the parish school next door to the library. Farrakhano, doubtlessly unaware that Father Gus had publicly denied his criminal record before the parishioners of Ascension Parish on May 19, 2003, stated that the friar had last year voluntarily admitted sexual misconduct with minors 20 years ago. Farrakhano's defense, notwithstanding Crumb's superiors, whisked the friar away to a new, undisclosed location. With... When uh, Ray Higgins, a member of the original Board of Inquiry into the St. Anthony's Seminary Scandal, heard that the Franciscans had reassigned Father Crumb. Knowing his past record, he was quoted as saying, it shows that they have no regard for the protection of children, despite what they say. Higgins certainly got that right. Lessons from the St. Anthony's Scandal Like all the case studies related in this chapter, it is difficult to fathom the depth of this tragedy in terms of loss of vocations to the priesthood, the loss of faith, and the pain and suffering experienced by the victims and their families that resulted from the St. Anthony's seminary debacle. It is important to note that that in it that In this report, the Board of Inquiry indicated that by the mid-1980s there were many signs of sexual irregularities at the seminary that should have have alerted Franciscan officials that something was morally amiss at St. Anthony's. We know for certain that the provincial minister knew of the existence of at least four sexual predators on staff before the scandal broke in 1989, and that he never turned the names of those criminal friars over to the police for trial. The board indicated that on several occasions two young boys not connected with the seminary were seen at a friar's table for dinner at night and breakfast the following morning. The board also noted that boys were brought into the private quarters of certain friars against all established rules and regulations of the province. The board learned that in the seminary's last days, faculty members routinely gave students full-body massages. There were also reports that upperclassmen were sexually abusing younger seminarians. In the foreword of to the report, we read, the majority of the friars at the seminary were not perpetrators of sexual abuse, nor were most at... Most of the students victimized. Moreover, the overall education and personal growth fostered by the seminary were accomplished despite the unfortunate and tragic developments described in this report. But clearly, this was not true. As one of the victims later confessed to his grieving mother, the seminary was filled with sexual activity. There was no protection, no peer support. Anyone who reads the report even in its modified format, has to conclude that the homosexual and pederastic underworld that operated at St. Anthony's Seminary from the mid-1960s to 1987 was well protected by a clerical clerical and secular underworld. Again, we quote Ray Higgins, where is the outrage of all of the good priests? Where indeed the Devil and St. Anthony's Seminary. Curious to know what happened to St. Anthony's after it was closed in 1987, this writer ran a computer search on the former seminary. It is currently up for sale with the current tenants being given first option to purchase the property. As of the spring of 2004, Franciscan friars could still be seen coming and going from the beautiful St. Anthony's Chapel with its exquisite stained glass windows and Stations of the Cross. Mass is still said here for members of the local Franciscan lay community. The chapel connects the two major wings of the former seminary that once housed classrooms, dining areas, libraries, laboratory and office space, open courtyards, gardens, and playing fields. The Rossi Group of Santa Barbara has played a major role in maintaining the site as a cultural and architectural landmark. The West Wing of St. Anthony's has been taken over by the Santa Barbara Middle School, a small private academy known nationally for its innovative hiking program. It has been a tenant for 14 years and is currently conducting a campaign to raise funds to buy the West Wing. The East Wing is home to the Waldorf School, the brainchild of Rudolf Steiner, 1861 to 1925, famed Austrian occultist, practitioner, former Rosicrucian and leader of the Theosophical Society and founder of the Gnostic religious movement known as Anthroposophy, Anthroposophy. The precursor of the new age movement in the united states steiner's occultist and pseudo spiritual scientific doctrines embrace reincarnation and other esoteric beliefs and practices the christ of steiner is a sun god who was sent to earth to help mankind restore the balance of forces between lucifer the light bearer and ahriman the prince of darkness all Waldorf schools share a common philosophy and curriculum that are ultimately, found, ultimately aimed at initiating each child into the secret knowledge, in quotes, which Steiner held to be the sole possession of the adept. The Franciscans have offered to sell the East Wing of St. Anthony's to the Waldorf school for $4.8 million. The devil certainly appears to still be having a field day at St. Anthony's Seminary. Exorcism, anyone? The Society of Jesus, Sex Abuse of the Mentally Handicapped. It probably has not escaped the attention of readers who have been tracking the clerical sexual abuse problem in the Catholic Church that the issue is almost always phrased in such terms as clerical sexual abuse of children or the sexual abuse of minors. Rarely does the press cover stories that involve clerical crimes against other vulnerable groups, such as mentally or physically handicapped dependent adults. The Los Angeles Times coverage of the desert scandal at Los Gatos was the the exception to the rule. On March 24, 2002, L.A. Times reporter Glenn F. Bunting filed a story titled Cloak of Silence Covered Abuse at Jesuit Retreat based on a little-publicized sexual abuse case involving two mentally handicapped men known as John Doe and James Doe who were employed as dishwashers at the Sacred Heart Jesuit Center in Los Gatos, California. The Jesuit complex was an, is an upscale, multi-purpose building nestled in the foothills above santa clara valley in northern california it is owned and operated by the california province of the society of jesus and overseas jesuits in four western states and hawaii in recent years the sacred heart center has served as a retirement village and medical facility for retired and ailing members of the order and a sanctuary for at least a half dozen convicted clerical pederast felons. John Doe, a polio victim and foster child, foster care child, came to the Jesuit retreat house in 1969 at the age of 24. James Doe, an orphan adopted by parents who later divorced, was only 19 when he came to the center both when men were mentally handicapped and treated as charity cases by the Jesuits, According to Bunting, the young men's starting salary of $150,000 a month gradually rose to $1,000 a month. No, according to Bunting, the young men's starting salary of $150 a month gradually rose to $1,000 a month. The Jesuits extracted for extracted money for room and board from the men's salary. Their rooms were located away from the Jesuit residence on the second floor of a storage facility. The whistleblowers in this case turned out to be two extraordinarily ordinary, decent women. One was John Doe's financial advisor. In May 1995, she overheard rumors from the kitchen staff that Father Leonard Connor, known as Brother Charlie, was sexually molesting John. She knew that the priest had taken John on trips and spent a great deal of time with him alone. After John confirmed that the rumors were true, John's advisor reported Father Connor to Father Greg Ahern, the Jesuit superior at the Sacred Heart Center. Although Connor initially denied the charge, he later admitted to Father Ahern that he may have inappropriately touched John while giving him a massage to ease his back pains, a practice, he said, that went back 10 years to 1985. Ahern warned Connor to hold all contact with John and James, and he filed a report with Father John Privett, the Jesuit provincial who resided at the Sacred Heart Center. Father Privett was the same laid-back Jesuit superior who had ignored complaints of systematic homosexual harassment and his solicitation by a dozen priests at the Jesuit's Berkeley Seminary campus until seminarian John Bullard filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against the California province. That should have been a wake-up call for Privet, but it obviously wasn't. Neither Ahern nor Privet ever reported the sexual molestation of John Doe and James Doe to law enforcement officials. The sexual abuse against John and James continued. Two years later, Holly Ilse, a local dress shop owner and friend of James, contacted the sheriff's office and reported that James told her that Connor was fondling him. This report, unfortunately, came to nothing, as both James and John, who had been repeatedly warned by Connor not to talk about the abuse to anyone, got scared and denied the charges in the presence of two uniformed deputies. The case was dropped, but to their credit, deputies from the sheriff's office continued their investigation of Brother Charlie. By the spring of 2001, the police had obtained additional evidence against Connor and once again returned to the Sacred Heart Center to discuss the allegations with yet another Jesuit official, Father Richard Cobb. And now for a reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, section four Hell, a reading from sections 10, 33. 1034 1035 1036 and 1037 1033 we cannot be united with god unless we freely choose to love him but we cannot love god if we sin gravely against him against our neighbor or against ourselves he who does not love remains in death anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him our lord warns us that we shall not be that we shall be separated from him if we fail to meet the serious needs of the poor and the little ones who are his brethren to die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting god's merciful love means remaining Un, means means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. ten thirty four. Jesus often speaks of Gehenna, of the unquenchable unquenchable fire reserved reserved for those who in to the end of their lives refuse to believe and be converted where both soul and body can be lost. Jesus solemnly proclaims that he will send his angels and they will gather all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire and that he will pronounce the condemnation, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. 1035. The teaching of the church affirms that exists affirms the existence of hell and its eternity immediately after death the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell where they suffer the punishment of hell eternal fire the chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs 10.36 10.36 The affirmation of sacred scripture and the teachings of the church on the subject of hell are a call to the responsibility incumbent upon man to make use of his freedom in view of his eternal destiny. They are at the same time an urgent call to conversion. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Since we know neither the day nor the hour, we should follow the advice of the Lord, and watch constantly, so that when the single course of our earthly life is completed, we may merit to enter with him into the marriage Feast, and be numbered among the blessed, and not like the wicked and slothful servants be ordered to depart into the eternal fire into the outer darkness where man will weep, and where men will weep and gnash their teeth ten thirty seven God predestines no one to go to hell for this a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin is necessary, and persistence in it until the end. In the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of our, of her faithful, the church implores the mercy of God, who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Father, accept this offering from your whole family. Grant us your peace in this life. Save us from final damnation and count us among those you have chosen. And that is all my readings and comments for now and so i'll end this podcast here may the holy may god bless this podcast and may the holy spirit use it to touch people's hearts in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen